We're going to uh, hit a, a landmark text today. So if you would please turn again to Luke chapter 10. And I am fairly certain that we are not going to get through all of this today. Um, <clears throat> if you recall, beginning in the 51st verse of chapter 9, Luke talks about Jesus setting his, his sights on Jerusalem. And that verse really opens what is normally called the travel narrative of Luke. It's going to run almost to the end of the 19th chapter. So 10 or 11 chapters compose this uh, so-called travel narrative. And it's, it's, um, it's been a mystery to commentators for 2,000 years. <clears throat> so I am not going to try to un unearth uh, that mystery, but uh, we're going to have to deal with it as we go through these 10 or 11 chapters. And the reason, the reason they're somewhat unique is because Luke is, is an historian and he has collated the events of these chapters and sometimes they appear to have very little, if any, connection. Uh, I would argue that there is a connection. Uh, I don't wanna get into that today about all the 10 chapters, but uh, you'll, you'll have to trust me on that one. But what, uh, what we encounter today, you remember last week we had that, that joyful reunion of the 72 that Jesus sent out, which was also a unique aspect of Luke. Uh, where we're going today is we're going to hit the first parable. Uh, probably 95% of all the parables of Luke are contained in this travel narrative. So we're going to get into, into parables in a big way and I want to make certain that on this first one, we learn some of the basic fundamentals of dealing with parables uh, so we can, can handle all of them. Plus, this is a very familiar parable and we will uh, resonate with it, I think. I'm, I'm specifically looking at the uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Uh, most people call this the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, let me just read that. It begins with a dialogue, as, as I'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, chapter 10, verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think, Jesus is now back to the attorney, 
proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now this is, a, uh, again, a very familiar uh, parable and story, and that, that frankly is a problem because we're too familiar with it. Um, and I, again, apologize that I've got to stand right in front of my blackboard here, but, um, <clears throat> but I want to introduce a couple of thoughts relative to, to the parables. You notice that there was an attorney on the front end and the back end of the parable. Uh, virtually every parable that's found in the New Testament has a dialogue section that plays a larger or lesser role. It depends. Uh, they're very, very different. In this particular case, frankly, um, most of what is, is intended is going to happen in the parable itself, but that is far from the only thing of import. Uh, so the dialogue in this case precedes it and postcedes it. There is an attorney who comes and a lawyer has a, a question or two for Jesus. Uh, and then Jesus uh, gets to the parable as part of his answer. Uh, <clears throat> Whenever you hit any, any part of scripture, any part of any book really, but any part of scripture in particular, uh, you must always assess a minimum of at least two horizons. Uh, there was a man named Anthony Thistleton, uh, British theologian, very, very good uh, theologian who wrote a book called The Two Horizons. Uh, ironically, three months ago today, Anthony Thistleton died, age 85, uh, but I remember that book uh, well from Westminster days and its, its import uh, cannot be overemphasized. Now, when you come to, when you come to a text uh, in the scriptures, you're dealing with a book that's written thousands of years ago in a culture far, far away that was very, very different from the culture we're familiar with today. Therefore, the first thing you need to do is get back into the eyes and the minds and the hearts of the people in that culture. That's the first horizon, the one in which it was written. The words were written into a very real scenario in life, and it's important to understand what those words meant to the people who heard them. That's the first horizon. Then you have to bring it forward to the 21st century to get to our own horizon and deal with that transition point, which is hard semantically. We're reading a book in English that was not written in English. So there's a lot of, of issues going on here, but um, the point is if you don't do both of the, you don't deal with both those horizons, you will not properly understand scripture. Uh, you will miss something. We're going to, to spend a, a good bit of time with this particular parable and going back uh, to the, um, 2,000 years ago to, to the time and the audience who heard this. And we're going to probably learn some things that we would not have gotten uh, had we not done a little bit of spade work. Uh, over the history of, of the church, over the last 2,000 years, people have approached parables in a couple of different ways. Uh, up, up until the Protestant Reformation, say around 1500, Everybody went to, uh, to an allegorical interpretive format, meaning 
every single snippet of a parable, every word in a parable, every noun, every description of a thing was assumed to have its own specific meaning and it was brought forward. It was, it, it turned it into a sort of Lord of the Rings uh, reading uh, and got really, really way off base. The Protestant Reformation saw that deficiency and as we so often do, overcorrected for it. Uh, so that we push the pendulum the other direction and said every parable can only have one meaning. Uh, that is just uh, unfortunate. That it, it's simply not the case. Uh, so thankfully, over recent uh, decades and so forth, we've learned a little bit uh, better to deal with scripture in general and parables in particular to come up with a notion uh, that I'm calling a theological cluster you see this circle behind me. A theological cluster is something that you could conceive. When we go to a parable, uh, think about the applications that are germane to that parable. Uh, there, are, there are more than one. There, invariably, there's more than one. Some will be in the center. The center, uh, the, those that cluster around the center of the circle are gonna be the most primary, the most important to learn. But there will be others that move closer and closer to the periphery uh, until you get to the point uh, where you've exceeded the bounds. That was the problem with allegorical interpretation. Most of what was said allegorically wasn't anywhere near the circle, much less in it, much less in the center of it. Uh, so we're going to look at this notion of, um, of parables and we're going to assume that an allegorical approach is a bad approach and one point out of each parable is as equally bad approach. Uh, think, for instance, of the parable of the prodigal son. The theological cluster for that parable could be the nature of the fatherhood of God uh, when, the, when the father pulls up his robe and runs, having uh, looked for the son. It could be the nature of true repentance. That certainly plays a large role. That's near the center. Uh, it could be an understanding of sin it could be self-righteousness that might lead to sin and unbelief. That could be the elder brother. It could be joy in a community. That one I'd put far toward the outer part of the circle. Uh, finding the lost. That too is in it, but it's out on the edge. But the point is all six of those, and there are more than that, in that particular parable are within the theological cluster of the parable of the prodigal son. It's, it's within valid biblical consideration and application to be taught from that parable. So with all that said, let's, let's go uh, Luke 10, uh, verses 25 to 37. Uh, first, you come to this opening dialogue. <clears throat> Again, a technique uh, that scripture will, will use. In this case, uh, we, we bump into a lawyer. Uh, the lawyer, it says in verse 25, the lawyer stood up. That's good. That was appropriate. That's what he should have done. In ancient Near Eastern culture, that was what was always done by a student when addressing a teacher. The teacher is the person of honor. In this case, Jesus being the teacher. Uh, the lawyer stands. That, again, that's, that's a sign of respect. But in that 25th verse, it says he stands in order to test Jesus. That makes his entire approach disingenuous. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So this lawyer is getting off on 
He's not even on his feet now. He, this is a very, he couldn't possibly have come with a worse purpose than to try to test the God of the universe, but he does. Uh, and he asks a question there in the 25th verse, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this, this, uh, this verb, do, little bitty two, two letter word. We're gonna encounter this, this verb three times in this passage and the tenses are gonna shift and there's enormous <coughs> significance in it. Uh, this particular attorney, for instance, had, when he's, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, he's, he's used a participial phrase with this, uh, to get this word do in there. Literally what he's saying is, having done what, will I inherit eternal life? In other words, he's assuming that there is a finite amount of data, that if he gets that finite amount of data straight, he can perform it and presto, done deal. He has achieved eternal life. Jesus is going to use the same verb twice. We're going to run into it again, very, very differently from this. But keep in mind that this lawyer's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, he, is, he is looking for a one, uh, one concept answer that would be doable. In other words, he's, he's hung up on works righteousness. He thinks he can attain eternal life. He thinks he can do it on his own. He can do it himself. Uh, so you see a couple of, of uh, problems here with the 25th verse. Another issue is in the question itself. What, what must I do to inherit? Who inherits? An inheritance is a gift. An inheritance doesn't come from payment for services rendered. So the lawyer not only has the wrong motive in mind trying to test Jesus, he not only has his concept a little bit uh, garbled, thinking he can do something in order to earn an inheritance, but he's also going about this whole thing as if it can be accomplished by his own efforts. So uh, this uh, particular dialogue, this, this one verse that begins it, uh, puts us in a very, very um, uh, wary place. Uh, things, are, things are already out of kilter. They are already unbalanced. Uh, there's a built-in deception and a flawed understanding of salvation, which is pretty impressive in one verse. So verse 26, Jesus doesn't answer the question. The lawyer's testing Jesus. So he wants, the lawyer thinks by standing and issuing this, what he thinks is this uh, very difficult question, that he's put Jesus on the defensive. Jesus regains the offensive by not answering the question of the attorney. Why? Because he knows what's on the lawyer's heart. He knows that the lawyer's trying to test him and he knows the, the uh, error, egregious errors, plural, uh, that, um, that have sent this, this man to him. Uh, Jesus responds with another question, sort of a Socratic technique here. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Uh, so he turns the question back uh, to the lawyer. In verse 27, the lawyer answers. He responds with a very good summary uh, of what Jesus has asked him. Uh, his, his response comes straight out of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. That's, that's the Shema. That's every Jew in, in the, 
the hearing of this, and, and really still today, many Jews will speak these words that the lawyer answers every single day of their lives. Uh, these are critically important, basic words. They come from Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Those two verses, those two passages, total of three verses from the Old Testament summarize all 10 of the, old, of the 10 commandments. Uh, the Deuteronomy passage summarizes commandments one through four, the Levitical uh, verse summarizes five through 10. So they are very basic and could not have been uttered in a better way than the attorney does it. Uh, love God and love your neighbor is essentially uh, what the lawyer says. That's the summation of the law. In verse 28, Jesus responds, you're absolutely right. Do this and you will live. Uh, Jesus is, is going to use the same verb here. Uh, however, he uses it in a present tense and what it means when Jesus speaks it is do it and keep doing it and keep doing it and do it until you have taken your absolutely last breath. You've got to be perfectly honoring of God and your neighbor for every single second of your life. It never ends. There is no way to conquer it. You must do it and continue to do it. And then you will live. Verse 29. This is the closing of of the dialogue. The lawyer should have, if he was listening and willing to consider what Jesus had said, the lawyer should have realized, wait a minute, nobody can do this. That's it. But he didn't. He lives in a worldview of works. He doesn't want to live by mercy. That's an insult to him. It's a weak position. And you will run into people like this today. Uh, he lives by his own intention, his own ability to present himself as a righteous man before God. I would even go so far as to say uh, virtually every Christian I know struggles with this. We don't want to be weak. We don't want to have Jesus have to die for us. We'd like to at least earn some credit. And it's very difficult for the Christian, but it's critically important for the Christian to realize that we inherit eternal life as a gift of pure grace. We are justified by faith alone, grace alone. It's not from anything we did. It's not from anything that God knows we are going to do. So what this attorney is, is struggling with is not something that is foreign. Um, I think frankly, we kind of resonate uh, with this lawyer. He comes back and he tries to justify himself by saying this. He brings up another question. He says, and who is my neighbor? Notice the word justify there. Now, the commentators have, have uh, it's fascinating to read a variety of, of commentators on this. When he says justify, he's not talking about justification by faith. Or is he? I would argue that in part he is unknowingly. He's talking about being justified. He wants, uh, he, he said, who is, who is my, my neighbor? Uh, so there's going to be a shadow here of that conversation and that, that the essence behind his intention is the same notion. He wants to know, how can I get eternal life? That's, that's the, the question everybody ought to be asking. So this, this lawyer is not out of line 
in, in his intention. He's out of line in the way he's going about it and, and he, his understanding. But again, uh, I would suggest that most people, most Christians, uh, really kind of resonate. We, we may not want to admit it in public, but we sort of resonate with this lawyer. Uh, surely there's somebody I'm not obligated to love. Uh, today, goodness, watch the news. Watch the news for five minutes. And you'll see a whole lot of people that you, you if, if they had a heart attack in front of you, uh, would you automatically say, oh, I, I love this person and, and run to their help? I would suggest that if we're honest, we would probably come up with a few names that we might, um, I think hopefully we would at least attempt to do something beneficial, but I don't know that we would be loving it in the process. So again, the dialogue that opens all of this leads to the lawyer's question of who is my neighbor? And to answer that, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, by, I don't know, a third of the commentators is presented as a chiastic structure. I wish they'd named it something a little more less frightening, but it, you don't need to worry. It's named after the, the Greek letter chi. Everybody knows Greek letter chi, an X. Think of an X. Half the X, half the chi gives you a chiastic structure. Uh, I have written on the board here the fact that the parable of the Good Samaritan occurs in seven scenes. And it, it's, it's an inverted chiasm. And what I mean by that if you start with scene one, you go to scene two, scene three, and that's why it comes in. You see the side of the X. Uh, what that accomplishes is it, it makes the middle scene the critical scene. So scene four, which is the Samaritan, that's in verse 33, is going to be the centerpiece of the parable. Then it works its way out again. And when I say it's, it's an inverted chiasm, what I mean by that is that as you move in, scene one, two, three, you see robbers, a priest, and a Levite. The Samaritan shows up, and as you exit, the Samaritan is going to be dealing with the failings of all three of these. Scene five is going to deal with the failings of scene three. Scene six is going to deal with the failings of two. And scene seven is going to deal with the failings of one. That is going to give a structure and a meaning to what we're about to see that is very important uh, to understand, and we'll bring that out as we go along. Now, uh, first scene, scene number one out of the seventh scene, verse 30, the robbers. It says, a man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, when you go down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho is, is sort of north-northeast of Jerusalem, uh, but... When it says he's going down, you're going down 3,300 feet of elevation in 18 miles because you're moving toward the Jordan River. So you're moving toward one of the lowest parts of, of, the, of the earth from Jerusalem, which is elevated. Uh, so you're moving down, you're dropping about 3,350 feet in an 18-mile trip through desert waste. All of these Facts are going to play a role in the parable. The man is assumed to be a Jew. Why? Because he's moving from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a dangerous road that he's on. 
It's, it's this, the road, the 18 mile road from Jerusalem to Jericho was called the bloody way for 2000 years. It was called that because of the terrain, the desert terrain and the fact that it's moving downhill the way it does. There are many, many gullies. There are many uh, outcroppings and things of that nature that made it very easy. If you wanted to be a robber, you could hide there. And a lot of them did the crusaders. When the crusaders came into the Holy Land, they built a fort right in the middle of the 18 mile trip to protect the pilgrims. There were so many of them who were attacked by marauding people of some sort or another. So the robbers really flourished. When you, once you left Jerusalem and got on this road, you were uh, in their bailiwick. And uh, up until the last century in the 1800s, people were still getting attacked on the road from Jerusalem uh, to Jericho. Uh, so this individual is, just says a man, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he's attacked by robbers. And here is, is maybe the most important part of the whole parable in terms of understanding its meaning. He is beaten, stripped, robbed, left for dead, meaning unconscious. That's, that's an English, the English verbiage there, left for dead. The, the man is unconscious. But here is why that is so incredibly important to the meaning of this parable. The Middle East in the time of Jesus had at least 15 distinctly different ethnic people groups that interacted. There were at least 12 different languages that were spoken in and around Jerusalem. When you came upon another person that you did not know, you had two different ways to figure out immediately who they were. Number one, their speech. If they spoke in Arabic, if they spoke in Aramaic, if they spoke in Hebrew, there are three different dialects of Hebrew, uh, Syriac, Phoenician, it went on and on and on. When you heard them speak, you knew immediately who they were. Or if you didn't hear them speak, you looked at their dress. Their dress was critical and identified them immediately. This man is stripped and he is unconscious. He cannot speak and he is not wearing anything. So there is no way whatsoever to identify this man. And this becomes critically important in the rest of uh, this, uh, this parable. So you have the robbers who have come in and, and done their thing. <clears throat> and left him for dead in a ditch. Scene number two, scene two of seven, verse 31. We're moving one step in now. We have a, we encounter a priest. A priest was going down the road, saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. The text doesn't say this, but the priest is riding. He's probably on a donkey. Could have been a camel, but was probably a donkey. The priest in Jerusalem at the temple, which is where this man was serving, were aristocrats. Uh, they, they had a, a hereditary guild position that made them some of the wealthiest people. No priest is gonna be walking in those dangerous 18 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's riding, he's wealthy, he served at the temple. The temple service had a hierarchy. Temple service in Jerusalem had priests at the top who were assisted by Levites, who were assisted by laymen. 
Uh, similar to a Presbyterian church, you might think of, of a ruling elder or a, a teaching elder, then a ruling elder, then a deacon. It would be the same sort of, of tertiary hierarchy here, only this time it's priests, Levites, laymen. Keep that in mind uh, just a tad further. They served two-week stints. Most of the priests lived in Jericho who served in the temple in Jerusalem. He's probably going home after a two-week stint. But he has an enormous problem. The single greatest detriment that this priest faces is becoming defiled under the law of Israel. And to be defiled meant contact with a dead body or a non-Jew. Either one of them defiled the priest. And when a priest became defiled, especially through touching a dead body, that priest was publicly, uh, he wasn't, some of them actually were beaten, but uh, normally you would just be brought forward in the middle of a service in the temple in Jerusalem and humiliated while you waited out uh, your time frame to be good again to go back to service. It was the greatest stigma, the greatest problem that this priest faces as he's going down the road. He sees this body, but he can't identify it. He can't come closer than four cubits to a dead body. A cubit was, was roughly the elbow to the end of the middle finger, so call it 18 inches, foot and a half. Uh, so he can't come within anything closer than six feet anyway. He's probably a good man. He's struggling. He's just like the attorney. He's caught in his own legal system. But what can he do? He's, he's got this theological slash legal system that really holds his hand. Notice that the command not to be defiled is unconditional to this priest. He must not be defiled, whatever he does. The command to love your neighbor was conditioned. He was under no obligation whatsoever to help someone who wasn't Jewish. Um, it, we, we often hear and we read about the woman at the well, Samarian. We know that Samaritans were not... Um, we're not uh, well-liked and all of this kind of thing. Uh, that doesn't begin. Uh, the normal prayer process of Judaism in this day always lifted up before God that he would kill all the Samaritans. There was an animosity between Jews and Samaritans. I don't remember if it was last week or two weeks ago we, we read from that passage out of the book of Kings uh, where all of that came from. But uh, at any rate... Uh, that's the problem that the priest has. So his solution is, I'm not going to deal with it. I can't run that risk. So he, he gets to the other side of the road and he continues on his journey. Now, scene three of seven, enter the Levite, verse 32. Levites assisted the priests in worship. He comes upon the dying man. He sees him and he also passes by on the other side. Now the Levite could have been walking, could have been riding, hard to know. They certainly were not uh, in any, any uh, manner of speaking remotely similar in the pecking order of the culture as the priest. But uh, whether or not he's riding or whether he's walking is unknown. But the defilement issue is not as great with the, with the uh, Levite 
as it is with the priest. It is there and he needs to take a, be aware of it, but it's not quite what it is for the priest. The problem that the Levite has, you don't know what direction. We know that the priests and, and the Levites are coming down. So, so they're walking down and the people who talk about this 18 mile journey, because it's downhill and because you have vistas along it, they mention the fact that often you were aware, you could see people who were on the same road far ahead of you. It's possible that this Levite knew that a priest had just walked by this guy and not done anything. Don't know that for sure. It's possible that he even knew it to be the priest he was serving, which would have made it far worse. Don't know that. Uh, but uh, even though defilement is not an issue, What's he going to look like if he shows up the priest? If he does something to help this man that the priest would not do, and he comes in and um, he's, he's, out, he's got the same problem the priest does in that he can't identify this man. He doesn't know if he's a Samaritan. He doesn't know if he's Jewish. He doesn't know if he's Phoenician. He doesn't know who this man is. So he does the same thing. He cops out, walks to the other side of the road and keeps going. He feared robbers, valid, very valid fear. Uh, but I think probably his greatest fear uh, was the priest that he, I think, knew was somewhere ahead of him. Now that brings us to the middle, and we'll begin to cover this. I'm sorry that we're doing it piecemeal, but I want to do this one very well so you, you get a feel for how you need to come into parables because we're going to run into about, about 17 more of them. Uh, before we get to Luke 19. Uh, so the centerpiece, verse 33. After the priest and the Levite, now remember the, the packing order is priest, Levite, layman. The audience listening to Jesus is going to expect the next person down to be a layman. Notice the first word in the, in the verse, but... Uh, where are we? Verse 33. It would help if I turn the page. But, but a Samaritan. This comes out of, of not just left field. This comes out of some place. It's not in the ballpark at all. For the audience listening to Jesus. Remember now, Jesus is, is, is having this conversation, a public conversation with a lawyer. The center of the chiasm here, the most important part of it. They expect a layman to show up, but instead a Samaritan. A Samaritan comes, he sees, and he has compassion. Now think about the courage that Jesus has. A Jew talking to other Jews, including at least some lawyers, legal, uh, where the, the law was everything. Jesus is going to tell that audience I'm going to bring a Samaritan in here and he's going to show up everybody that you think is on the top of the pecking order. And I'm going to make it painfully obvious to you. So Jesus just Jesus telling this is, is pretty critical. He has a lot of courage. What is also fascinating is the word compassion. In English, it says the, the Samaritan has compassion. Splot nidzomai. That's the Greek word. Those of you who are doctors, who are nurses, you know this word, the splotnoid nerves. 
are the, all the main nerve systems to all of the organs in the abdominal cavity of the body. The splenoid circulation system comes off the main aorta. It's the main blood flow to all of the organs in the abdominal. Uh, in scripture, you'll see this word translated guts, bowels, intestines, emotions. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 1 it translates it with the word affection. Colossians 3 verse 12 translates it with the word hearts. Uh, in other words, this Samaritan has a deep gut level emotional reaction to this naked, unknown man dying in the ditch. The reaction that the Levite didn't have, the reaction that the priest didn't have. And I've got to leave you there. <laughs> I am sorry, but, uh, but hold that thought for a week. <laughs> and Lord willing, we will work our way out. What, what we see, what we are, we're at a very important part. Now we see the Samaritans show up and have this, this gut level reaction of compassion to a man he knows, if he's Jewish, would kill him in a minute if he had the opportunity. And he's going to start doing things. Think about what the Levite failed to do, what the priest failed to do, what the robbers did do, and this Samaritan's going to reverse all three of those as we work our way out. And remember, all of this is Jesus is answering the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? And then we're going to get uh, into some really uncomfortable territory when we get uh, to that point. But we'll pick up with verse 34. And I'm uh, sorry we don't have two or three hours. I would love to get into this uh, more deeply. But uh, we, will, we will chip away at it. And if the chips keep flying, the tree will fall at some point. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we do thank you uh, that your word is so, so rich, so full, and it helps so much uh, to understand these things and see what's really being spoken to us. The, the drama that is in this little parable, the Good Samaritan, is large, but it's heading toward a point that is going to be hyper-convicting to every one of us in this room. Father, we need to hear these things because so often it's easy to side with the lawyer. Uh, our, we're sinful people just like that lawyer and we come up short, Father, with this notion of compassion. We know we cannot love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and body. We know that we don't love our neighbors ourselves. So Father, we know that the solution has been given by the person narrating this parable that Jesus has come, gone to a cross, taken our sins upon him and given us his perfect righteousness. That and that alone allows us to stand before you and claim the blood of your son, Jesus. It's nothing about us. Father, we thank you for that. And I thank you that Jesus is going to use this Samaritan to illustrate this and so much more. Father, whet our appetite for your word and help us to dig deeply and to act upon the riches we're going to uncover. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.